In this episode, we wade out there with Chad Miller from Indiana. Chad grew up in a family of basketball players and fly fishers. He spent much of his youth chasing smallmouth on Sugar Creek and the Tippecanoe River. Chad went on to open his own fly shop, guide, and travel the world fly fishing. We discuss smallmouth bass fishing on Sugar Creek and the process of fishing. Welcome to the Wade Out There Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Shemchuk. At Wade Out There, we believe fly fishing is special, but not elite, and that anyone can become a great fly fisher if they are willing to go, learn, and teach. Join me as I talk with other fly fishermen and women about their unique journeys into fly fishing, the rivers they fish, and the tactics and philosophies they practice. For those who can never leave the river in their hearts, this podcast is dedicated to helping you make the memories that keep us all coming back to Wait Out There. Welcome, Chad. Thanks for being on the Wait Out There podcast. Uh, I'm excited to talk to you, and uh, we're not we're not broadcasting the uh, the video, but I wish I kind of wish we were because your backdrop is so awesome with all these pictures of fish in the background. It's very fishy. It looks great, and you got some fly rods back there too. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jason. This when I sold my fly shops and got out of the lodge business and everything. I didn't have a fishing room at home. I wasn't allowed to because I sort of had the ultimate fishing room in the fly shop. So my wife redid this whole area. And if I could show it all to you and people could see it, it's, it's, uh, there's just dozens of pictures of trips. And so it's a good place to come and remember things and think. Yeah. I think that's important. Uh, I have a little, well, now I have an office and an art studio and, and that. But even before before we moved to Utah, I had a little little nook in the house where I had all fly shops and pic- or where I had all fly fishing pictures and things. And for all the reasons that you just said, it was a good place. I would tie there, think about stuff, plan plan fishing trips and things. So that's mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. So you used to run fly lodges, but not anymore. That's uh, that's over. Well, I. I was partners in um, a couple of lodges in Southern Chile, Cinco Rios and Estancia del Zorro. Um, and when I got out of the fly fishing business, retail business, I, I sold my part of that and, and uh, got out of that. And, but I am actually um, took a several year hiatus and, and restarted my travel business. So I'm actually going down there with a, for a couple of weeks with groups in February. So yeah, it'll be a nice homecoming. Well, that's cool. And I really want to talk about your fly fishing journey and how you ended up owning and fly fishing in Chile and doing those types of things and taking a break and coming back. Uh, when I was thinking about what kind of questions uh, I was going to ask you and what things we we're going to talk about, Chad, you know, uh, of course, I want to talk about smallmouth fishing and, and that and the region that you're fishing in Indiana. Uh, but I, I came across this uh, quote came across this quote that you that you wrote uh and i was wondering if if you would mind if i shared it you, you shared it on social media so i thought i'd just read it for people because i think yeah. it's it's exciting and it's relevant and it's uh it's uh fairly recent as well sure i write a lot of stuff so we'll see how this goes <laughs> all right all right so you wrote i'm 52 years old and i have lived 15 minutes from sugar creek my entire life I've rowed and fished the Tippecanoe River now for 38 years. Today was the single best fishing day I have seen in my entire life on either river. 
regardless of season, December 15th, 2021, marks the greatest day I have ever seen on a smallmouth river in Indiana. So I just feel very fortunate to be talking to you, you know, five days after the, of, of all your years of fishing, the greatest day of fishing in your life. And I think it's exciting that, that for you to say that. And uh, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that day. Well, I am prone to hyperbole. So let's, let's, uh, get that out full disclosure, but, um, it's true. It was a magical day that for whatever reason happened, the conditions, I don't know, lined up right. You know, I, when I, when I guide in the wintertime, I'm very picky about the days I go. I sort of have a list of people, um, that I give, I'll open up days when I see the forecast looks right and the river looks right. And I'll say, okay, this is, this is when it's likely to happen. So these days I'm going to guide and guys grab the days up. Just so happened the guy that grabbed this day is a guy I guide, you know, 25 days a year. And, uh, he usually grabs us pretty quick and it just, everything (laughs) just worked. And uh, I, it is interesting because I have been on that river on Sugar Creek my whole life. And I don't actually remember the first day I fished it. I couldn't tell you. Um, and we we had some really important conservation uh, things happen over the last 10 years that made a good fishery a great fishery. Uh, it's concerning to me as well, you know, when you talk about your favorite rivers, you're always a little afraid of that uh, you might be doing it a disservice. But I, I remember reading a story when I was a kid, and I think it was Fly Rod and Real Magazine, and there was a guy who had a, a creek, a stream near his home that he never told anybody about it. Had, it was in the New England area and had brook trout in it. And he always kind of kept it to himself. And there was a few other people that knew about it. And he moved away and he came back and he saw that homes had been built around it. The water had increased in temperature significantly and the brook trout were all gone. And he lamented, yeah. he lamented that, uh, through his life thinking, well, you know, I didn't tell anybody about it and I didn't tell anybody about it. So this is what happened. Maybe if someone would have known about it, they would have been protected. So that's sort of the double-edged sword of telling people about your water. You want to protect it. And that's what's happened. Sure Creek became more popular, Tippecanoe River. Indiana rivers have become more and pop, more popular to the local anglers and to people out of the state. So there's more people to fight for them. So that's the I think that's a formula that you just you have to you have to include in the formula, so to speak. Yeah, I think that's valid. I mean, if people don't know, then how can you expect them to protect it if they don't know it needs protecting? I think that's pretty insightful, and uh, it's definitely another consideration. You know. Yeah, I, that that day in particular, though, I you know I. It's, it's hard not to consider what we did in the past leading up to that in terms of conservation. But my rivers produce big smallmouth, and that's not new. <laughs> you know, people talk about yeah. states and big smallmouth, and i got to be honest with you, you're going to have a tough time beating our top end fish in Indiana. Really tough time. Yeah. You've been fishing Sugar Creek your whole life. Are you from there? Have you been there the whole time, or did you – grow up, move away, come back. Can you talk about your fly fishing journey and how, um, I mean, 
it sounds we're talking about Chile, we're talking about Indiana, we're talking about all these things. I'd, I'd love to hear that story. There's absolutely no reason that my career should have happened. I'm from, <laughs> I'm from a small town in West Central Indiana. In fact, if you've seen the movie Hoosiers, you've seen where yes. I'm from. At the beginning of the movie, Gene Hackman's driving down uh, 175, County Road 175, across Sugar Creek at the beginning of the movie, and that's a bridge I put in uh, at probably 40 times a season out of the 150 trips. Uh, really? 40 times, but 20, 20 to 25 times. Um, that's and, super uh, interesting. I love Hoosiers. That's a great movie. I'm going well, to look I, for it. Yeah, my family's really linked to this whole thing, too, my if you, uh, my great uncle's brother invented and built the first electronic scoreboard in a basketball uh, uh, gym. Are you a basketball player? Are you a basketball family? Yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately, we had two traditions, <laughs> in my, two traditions in my family: basketball and fly fishing. And you can't play basketball forever. Uh, so, I think okay. ultimately, fly fishing was, I think, uh, culturally in my family maybe even more important than basketball, but basketball was, was, I mean, it's pretty important. I, I'm from Montgomery County. It's the cradle of basketball. It's where it was first okay. transplanted and became a, a real competitive sport. And the history of it is just absolutely amazing here. Um, but anyway, that's want to get off the subject, but no, that's not off topic. That's super interesting. I've, I've lived within a half a mile uh, radius my whole life. So I've never moved, never lived anyplace else. This is it. This is where you've been fishing. Okay. Yeah. And have you ever had, never had a desire to go anyplace else? Just love, love living out there and fishing for smallmouth. Nah, I've seen the world from, from where I live. I don't see much reason to, to move. Why Chile then? How did that happen? What's, What's that all about? Yeah, that was a kind of a uh, interesting story. I I was uh, I had been a customer there taking taking groups down there for years, and I was really close friends with Jay Bergen, who owns Five Rivers Lodge in Dillon. And uh, he was he was getting older and ready to get out of that business, so uh, he thought it'd be cool if I took that part of it, and I bought him and became partners with a man named Sebastian Galilea and, uh, and Greg Vincent. Um, and, uh, we, we built a, you know, or I contributed to what I think is one of the best trout operations in the world. And so I, it's, it was something that I never dreamed I'd get the opportunity to do, but did. And, um, those years of my life were, uh, a big deal. Were you fishing throughout growing up and playing basketball at the same time? <laughs> so I'm the, I'm the great family disappointment probably. Um, okay. okay. You know, I, uh, there were 13, I think in my high school, there were 13 of us that cousins in my generation and the next generation that played and then we had uncles. In fact, my uncle was the county's all-time leading scorer at one point. And uh, my dad was a very good player. My uncles, so on and so forth. And um, my cousin, who's closest in age to me, we played together, and we were pretty advanced. And um, I 
while I played the whole time through high school, I <laughs> I didn't reach my potential. And uh, it's always been a little bit of a frustration from uh, my dad. Um, and uh, But it was really fishing that got in the way. That's just the truth. I, <laughs> I loved yeah. it. I didn't love basketball or baseball. I loved fishing. And um, so it's it's been good and bad for me. It's been great for me as a as a profession, but not always great for me on a personal level. Um, so, you know, yeah. when I hear people say, well, I'm obsessed with fishing. I, I stop them and say, you know, that's probably not healthy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you will uh, you'll frustrate a lot of people in your life because of that. So yeah, I try to keep it more, a little more balanced you, today. Yeah. And your father fly fished as well. Yeah. I come from a generational fly fishing family. My, which starts with my um, my grandfather, C.L. His, his dad, my great-grandfather, Paul, fished, but we don't know if he fly-fished. He fished Sugar Creek, we know that. But it really, we kind of credit C.L., my grandpa, with the beginning of it. And then my dad was a really good fly angler, um, fished in saltwater all over the world with me. Um, and then me and then my son, who Stone, who uh, was a guide in Montana last year. So um, Stone, I guess he's the fourth generation. I'm the third generation. Stone, my son, is the fourth generation of fly anglers. Did Stone move to Montana? What was that like? Was that uh, was he a basketball player as well? And was that he was? Hey, yeah, we all are. yeah, we all are. Yeah, we all are. Fishing, fishing for him was more important too. Um, he went. Well, he, that's good. He, but he's back here in Indiana again. So. He had his time out there and loved it. Okay. Misses it, misses it horribly, but uh, it was time really? to get on with other things. He, well, he saw how a lot of my friends ended up and thought, you know, if I keep going down this road, I'm going to end up like a lot of them. <laughs> so I better get. How's that? What? Me, draw me a, paint me a picture of how that ended up. What? What did you? Well, a lot the negative, of uh, the obsession caught up with him. Yeah, I mean, I I think well the. You know, he sees a lot of older guides and let's face it, I'm, you know, a lot of guides, they sort of fish their lives away. And then at the end, they're like, whoa, I never got married. I never put roots down. I never, you know, so there's a, there's something that a guide sacrifices most times or sometimes yeah, in their life to do yeah. what they love. And he, you know, it was, I, I'm unique in that I live where I live and guide the water of my childhood and didn't have to move and go out West or down South yeah. or up North. So. Yeah. I, I just moved to Utah so that I could be around the waters that I wanted to fish and have my family close by and not have to travel as much and not have to be, um, you know, playing, you know, doing some of the things that you just described. So I can see where that's, I can see where that would be a, a challenge, I guess. And it's good to be by family as well, uh, for sure, uh, when you're raising a family, uh, which is cool, which I'm closer to my family now as well. Uh, and done with the Air Force stuff. So this is a good place for us, and we're happy here. So, uh, okay, Chad, so you're playing basketball and you're fishing and maybe not living up to your basketball potential. I think that's super funny. Or scholastics uh, or anything else. Okay. All right. It's It's – it is the obsession that you're talking about, maybe an unhealthy one. It was unhealthy, yes. 
so did that just naturally lead into guiding? I know I, I read somewhere that you maybe were a reluctant guide or you didn't get into it naturally. So how did you professionally transition into the fly fishing world, I guess, from just being a high school basketball fly fishing guy to, you know, what, what drove you down this road? Well, I, w- I did go to college. I got in because somebody, a friend of mine, got me in. And then I promptly flunked out in three semesters because, again, I was fishing too much. And in fact, the funny thing is, I went to Purdue University. Uh, I flunked out. Ten years later, uh, the dean of students, or the dean of admissions, who technically kicked me out, didn't know me from Adam, but technically kicked me out, came retired and then came to work for me in the fly shop ten years later. So, <laughs> uh, the tables have turned. They did. But I, I, yeah. uh, I really wanted to I, – I was determined to be in fishing as a career. I just didn't know what it looked like. And yeah. I decided in the, in the mid-'90s that a fly shop was a good idea. Whether it was or not, I probably wasn't. But I, I thought, I'm opening a fly shop. And so I opened uh, – to make a long story short, I opened my first fly shop in Lafayette, Indiana, not, not far from Purdue, actually. And uh, – got it going. And the, the guide part is interesting because I, I really did not want to guide. Uh, I Why thought, not? Well, I had no desire to watch people fish my water and I sure didn't okay. want to take people fishing. That just seemed like, why would anybody want to do that? Plus, honestly, at that point, why would anybody pay me to take them to my water? That didn't, didn't seem to add up. And there was a guy named Dave McCarty who was uh, um, he was an editor for Indian or for Midwest Fly Fishing Magazine, which was a great magazine. Um, long gone, but it was a great magazine. And he called and said, "Hey, I heard you opened a fly shop. I think I was twenty-seven years old. Said I'd like to do an article about you. I hear you grew up on these rivers. Let me do an article." So he did. It was great. And you know what, twenty-seven-year-old doesn't want his ego stroked, and. The article came out, and all of a sudden, people started showing up to shop asking for trips. And I said, I'm not a guide. I'm not going to take you. I don't even know what to do. I didn't grow up right. money, so we didn't grow up fishing with guides. I just didn't. Yeah. I mean, it's not what we did. We were DIY anglers, didn't have a lot of money. I just We didn't hire guides. And so I didn't even know what to do. I'm the same way. I didn't have any guides growing up. Yeah, I, I, I went on one full guided trip to the Quetico uh, after high school. Um, and that's the only time I've ever fished with a guide. So I really didn't know what to do. And, and one guy, I remember one day, one guy, there were two guys in the shop. One guy, I gave him a map and some flies and said, oh, you'll, you'll be just fine. Go. And the other guy just would not take an am- no for an answer. In fact, he was kind of an ass about it. <laughs> um, and I, I said, uh, fine, I'll take you. And you kind of shut him up kind of thing. He said, okay, get your calendar out. I opened it up and I had Saturday, June or Saturday, September 23rd, I think open. And so yeah. I took him and it was a forced March, you know, a, a weight trip. I didn't have a boat. And uh, so I took I'm just imagining days. Chad with a negative attitude, getting out there grumpy. I wasn't. I was. I was actually. You know. I was cool with it. I. I I've never. I, I just don't get grumpy when I'm on the water. It's hard for me to be grumpy, on the water. All right. 
Well, that's a good. That's good for someone who's guiding. So maybe this is. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And I fished with grumpy guides, and usually I have to have a, to the point in my life I'll pull them aside and have a conversation. But, um, I I took him. He caught fish, paid me, and I thought, huh, I wonder if anybody else would. Want to do that. <laughs> uh, so then you're like, that was that was kind of fun. It wasn't I kind of too bad. It. I didn't mind that. I guess. <laughs> Was that when it changed for you then? Did the light bulb come on or was it gradual? Was it like, okay, I've dipped dip my toe in the water? It was kind of gradual. My dad, I remember I put an email or not an email, a newsletter, print newsletter out to my customers and said, hey, I'm going to guide. And if you want a trip, yeah. these are the days I can go. And people started to call and book trips. And my dad was not happy about it. He did not, not want people. Well, he did not want people on Sugar Creek. He says, I don't mind if you float him on the Tippecanoe River because I'd rode him. At that point, I'm 27, 28 years old. I'd rode him down the river since I was 15. So, you know, yeah. it was a big river. He didn't care. But Sugar Creek, ooh, he did. He was not happy. And yeah. uh, so <laughs> my guide career began. I started to take people fishing, and it progressed from there. That was in 1996. And actually, I fell in love with it. I, I really did. I It it made me over time a better angler. Um, and I think through guiding, I became a better smallmouth angler, biologist, uh, naturalist in a general sense. It, it really expanded me greatly as a guy, as a, as an angler being a guide. How so? Well, now I'm not. I, so I think the, biggest problem with anglers is, and we all do it, is we're, we've got blinders on and we are really focused on what happens in front of us. And we're not really paying attention to the things that are happening around us. Well, when we fish a river and we float, we always look for the next spot, 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 where the guide is looking ahead. He sees the fishing from 10,000 feet. So he sees all these elements sort of happening at once. And so recognizing these things that I didn't necessarily see before became much clearer to me as a guide. Uh, particularly in 99 when we started getting drift boats. We got drift boats and rafts in 1999. That changed everything. Because now I'm seeing the river in a completely different way. Um, and so the other issue was in the beginning when I guided is there weren't that many smallmouth flies. We had woolly buggers and some other flies. You know, Whitlock had some flies and Lefty Cray and um, Bob Clouser, obviously. But there wasn't a lot of that smallmouth fishing developed at that point. Um, yeah. And so that, through guiding, it allowed me to do that. And I'm pretty, I think I would, you know, if you're on the water day after day after day, your learning curve is is uh, much, isn't near as steep. You, if that's the right way to put it, let's just say my learning was condensed into a sh shorter period of time. But I mean, I'm this is 25 years now, and I'm still developing and learning some things, uh, particularly with this winter fishing developing. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, guiding guiding made a huge difference. What's something you learned recently or relearned? You talked about learning, and couldn't agree more. But something that has it really hits home as like, ah, I just learned that after all your time. Um, you know, I, it's unusual in the winter time to have high water 
usually you've got lower, clearer water. Um, you don't have as many big rain events. You don't have uh, you have mu you have very clear water usually because if you do have snow, it melts off. It's really very clear. In fact, fish can be somewhat spooky. You almost believe it or not, in the wintertime, sight fish some of these smallmouth. Um, but what I learned was is that my same ideas about fish in the spring in high water can apply to winter fishing as well, particularly those areas that I would call micro holes or micro uh, spots. And that the water makes that when you have high water and water that you can't certainly, Sugar Creek, for example, gets too high to wade. Um, it's actually, Sugar Creek makes it sound like it's small. It's actually not. It's a river. And in high water, you can't even put a kayak on it. It's a, it's a dangerous river to be on. And what happens in any river in high water is that things become very defined. So uh, current breaks um, and holes and hydraulics become much more defined in high water. It's like it's amplified. So consequently, those places can be easier to see. And if you know and understand that, you can find those smallmouth that actually in high water, sometimes they spread out if you, if you don't have a lot of current. But if you have a lot of current, they will condense and get into smaller areas. Yeah. So it's been fun to sort of develop high water winter fishing that I had usually not seen that condition. So it's been fun to see that develop this year in particular because we've got this La Nina that's giving us a lot of water and a little higher temperatures. So in that high water, I like winter high water anyway, because you get a little bump in temperature and you get a little stain on the water. So you're not spooking fish, which you can do in that really clear water. So that's been fun to see. Fun to develop. Yeah. Was that something that contributed to your tremendous day on the water a few days ago? It is exactly why I had that day. If, if I didn't, <laughs> okay. if I didn't adjust and I had been adjusting the days before that and we'd had good days, but this was like a, I know for me as a guide, when I, when I see, when I see the river and I get on it, it's as if you see, if especially if you floated a section and I have a lot of different sections, if you floated a section a lot in your life, you see the whole thing in your mind and you see all the places and think about all the places potentially where there would be fish and the conditions just, it just like it. It's what it was like having a depth finder. You could see everything and where it was going to happen. And it just did. It was, it helps to have a really, really, really good angler in the boat. You're rowing. But um, I think those conditions sometimes for guides, if you're on the water and really dialed in, this is why I kind of, I'm a little critical of part-time guiding and I don't want to put down part-time guides. I hope they have a good time. I hope all that's, and that's fine and dandy, but it's difficult when you're not on the water daily to sort of see the progression of fishing. Um, I quit for six years because of that, because I couldn't be as good a guide as I needed to be. Uh, and so being on the water really helps. So you need to be able to recognize those things quickly. What was that six years like? Can you go into why you stopped or... I mean, you said because you couldn't be full-time, I guess. was Wildcat Creek Outfitters had grown to the point where it was just impossible for me to guide. And I had my days had really dwindled down. And I was answering the phone a lot with customers in the boat. You know, somebody called and say, hey, I need to, I want to go to Russia. Well, you yeah. know, or I wanted, you know, it's like, 
because I'm the guy they need to talk to in the store about some of those trips. It just felt like it wasn't fair. It wasn't fair to them. It wasn't fair to me. And the business had grown tremendously at that point. It was just time for me not to guide. And I just retired. I thought, you know, I'm done with guiding. I've, I've kind of, you know, lived my life and in the boat and in the shop. And it was time for me just to grow the business, which it did. And that was actually a very, I think in retrospect, a very wise move. Um, so those six years, I, to be honest with you, I really didn't miss guiding at all during those yeah. six years. Um, Do you still get to fish? I mean, you get to fish, but not guide. You must have fished some. Oh, sure, I did. But it gotten to the point where, you know, I was doing five or six big international, hosting five or six big international trips a year, and that became my fishing. And so I kind of became the guy I was sort of critical of, you know, and I didn't like that. Um, <laughs> okay. And so, I, it, I mean, sure, I did. I fished my river, obviously. I lived yeah. Yeah, 15 yeah. minutes from it. But it just wasn't, uh, I wasn't the same. I wasn't the same as an angler, and I wasn't, I don't think I was probably the same as a person. I just, that time, that period was fun to see a business grow, but probably not great for me personally. What kind of trips did you, were you planning and how did you kind of navigate that and grow in the business? I mean, that sounds really exciting. You know? That's a, that's a good question. I, um, I had not, you have to remember again, I didn't grow up with money and guides and, um, you know, I'm in West central Indiana. Yeah. I remember when I opened the fly shop, uh, Bill Frazier, who was my sage rep at the time, said, you know, you should really host a trip someplace. I was like, whoa, what do you, what do you mean? Well, I, you know, I go to Belize. I go to Turner Flats. Why don't you just go there? I'm like, whoa, you mean go catch a bonefish? I mean, I could do that. But, Bill, yeah. I've never been on an airplane. I'm 30 years old at this point. I've never been on an airplane. And so um, I said, well, you know what? I'll try. So I called and said, hey, I, how many people do I need to get a trip? So they told me, and I thought, okay, well, I'll try to do that. So I got a few people to go, and like, wow, I'm going to go to Belize. So I went to Belize, caught bonefish. Uh, how does that work? You call a lodge down there, and then you organize guests to come, and you... Yeah, Craig Hayes, is the, Craig Hayes, who is a really good dude, um, owns Turn of Flats. I think, I think he still owns Turn of Flats. And I just called him and said, hey, this is what I want to do. And he says, okay, well, this is what you got to do. And they tell you. And you, that's how I started. I, I also kind of had a mentor in the business, a guy named Ray Schmidt, who owned a fly shop in Michigan. And he had a travel business. And he kind of put me under his arm and said, this is how you do it. This is how you host a trip. And I'd host trips to his okay. lodge. And it just progressed from there. I, I, my dad, the second year my dad went to Belize with me, <laughs> which was a shock. He said, I'm going. I said, what? You're really going to go? Yeah, go. Why was it a shock? Because it's the same well, thing. Like, never left. Like that. I mean, we, a big trip for us was to go to Minnesota to catch smallmouth or go to Arkansas, which we did a lot to catch yeah. trout. That was our yeah. travel. We yeah. Just didn't... Yeah. My vacations growing up were driving to Montana or driving to Oregon, pretty much. Yeah, exactly. We sure didn't fly. We didn't have the money to do that. And so he he'd become pretty successful in his business. And it was time for him to start to travel, and and it's a family business. That's a, that's the other thing. <laughs> we I grew up in a in a locker plant slash slaughterhouse, and and uh, anyway, so that was five generations of, in that business. And Dad had it and grew it and was successful. And it was time for him to go 
do what he wanted to do. And he, he went to Belize with me and he caught bonefish. And I'll never forget the first day he, he caught like six bonefish and he was hooked. That must have been really special. Oh, it was. He became obsessed with, with bonefish, just obsessed. And it was fun to see that with my dad become a saltwater angler like that, you know, catching tarpon and he caught permit yeah. that, that trip. He got to permit. He just became, so he kind of became the guy who said, okay, I found a new destination, saltwater destination. Let's go there. So it's okay. I'll put a, put a group together and we'll go there. So dad was kind of the driving force of that early traveling of, Hey, let's go explore this. Let's go do this. And it was it was a really a great, he, he died way too early. He, uh, sort of a freak thing. And, um, but I, I'm that sorry was to hear that. Oh, I'll see him again. He was a believer like I am. I'll see him yeah. again. And, um, I, uh, I, but to have him during those years through my thirties and into my forties and travel the world with him, I always think, man, if grandpa CL would have seen us, you know, in some of these places, he didn't, <laughs> he didn't never believed it. So for me, this was a fantastical life that I never dreamed I'd get to lead. And the travel was just such a important part of that. And I've been on five continents and, you know, was partners in a, in lodges in Patagonia. And so when I told you at the beginning, this life should have never happened. It, there's no reason that it should have happened, but it did. And I'm continuing this life that I just sometimes think, how in the world did I get here? I I used to have... How did you get there? How did oh, you get there, Chad? So well, let's go back to, a, can you point to a decision or a thing where you said, you know, because I always think about things like this, uh, maybe in my own life or other, just I think about it a lot and decision points or times when I might have done something that I see... It, it was risky or it seemed risky. Was there a why in the road like that for you? Yeah, there was. Um, and it was actually after I was married before I had kids. So it was really risky. My kids have never known anything in their lives except our, our lives in fly fishing um, on a, on a business level. But um, I've had, I used to have parents occasionally come in the fly shop and say, Hey, my son would, or my daughter would like to do this for a living. How, how do you, how do you do this for a living? I was just really honest with him. I said, well, um, you ignore personal responsibility. You alienate your loved ones. You flunk out of college. And then one day you wake up and somebody's paying you to take them fishing. That's just, <laughs> that's just how it worked for me. I wish I could tell you that it was a gradual thing into it. But I always had my sight set on, okay, what is it that's going to get me into it? I just didn't know how to do that. I thought I couldn't. I even, you know, back in the 90s after I was married in 93, 94, we went to Arkansas like we had for a long time, fished the White River. And I told my wife, I said, hey, look, I really want to do this for a living. There's really no men. There's not many fly fishing guides down here. And there was guys like John Golly. Um Dwayne Hayden maybe at that time was doing some down in Indiana. You mean? No, in Arkansas. And oh, okay. I told my wife, I said, let's just move down here and I'll guide and we'll just start that way. And she said, uh, absolutely not. So that was, that was out of the question. She didn't want to leave. She didn't want to leave home. 
No, she didn't. She didn't want to leave town, Indiana. Yeah. So, what about is she? Is she a fisher? Does she like to fly fish? Um. Yeah, she does. I wish we did it more together. You know, when something's your avocation, your 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 vocation. Sometimes you don't. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have spare time, you know, you kind of want to go do other things. So, as a as a family, we would you know do other things too. But no, I mean she she does like fishing. I think I think we'll probably. Our kids are almost all gone. So, you know, I kind of envision that we end up fishing more together. She's been to, you know, she'd go to the Bahamas with me and places like that. So she has has done some of that. But, yeah. Um, all right. But, uh, well, the, the fly shop came along when I was 27, the idea to open a fly shop. And that's how really, that was, the, if you're asking if there was a why in the road, that was it. Yeah. Yeah. Was there any other fly shops around in the area? Was there competition or was it? Yeah, there was, there was fly masters in Indianapolis and there was, um, Jorgensen's in Fort Wayne. Um, there was, uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana. I know that place. That's an A-10 base. Oh yeah, you're right. And Grissom's not far from there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know. I got buddies that fly up there. Okay. Um, and some, and some others that, but, um, so yeah, I mean there was a little competition, but again, it was Indiana and I was I was in West Central Indiana all by myself. So mm-hmm. it's interesting that my my fly development and my development in techniques as a guide sort of developed in a vacuum. I didn't have a lot of feedback with people on any of this. It was sort of very trial and error where all that was concerned. Um, Do you think that was good or bad? I think ultimately it was very good for me. You know, I, I, uh, I was aware of some things, but I didn't have people to talk to. There weren't other guides. Uh, and so I, I was a little on an Island <laughs> where I was at. Um, I had yeah. a good friend and rep, uh, Jerry Darkus, who has written several books. In fact, we did, did some videos and stuff together and wrote some articles together over the years. And we did one called guide patterns for smallmouth bass and, uh, so I would get to bounce things off of him. I would go over to Lake Erie and fish with him and bounce some things off of him. So he was a, he was a help in those years when I thought about how to develop things and techniques. And he pioneered, he was a real pioneer in sinking lines and, and shooting heads for smallmouth in lakes. And I was doing that with him in the Great Lakes. And I would apply that stuff in the nineties and in the early two thousands to what I was doing in rivers and while it was different, some of the same principles applied. So I got, so that yeah. was really kind of the, you know, my, uh, you know, my development that, that helped tremendously, but yeah, I was in sort of a vacuum and I think, I think ultimately it, it helped me in a lot of ways. Well, it's a fascinating story and I really appreciate you sharing it. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about some of your home waters and why they're special to you and, and how you like to fish them? Yeah. They're Sugar Creek and the Tippecanoe River are very special to me. And I, I mean, my, my whole life has been spent on these rivers. And when I was a kid fishing them, we were, there weren't that many people even cared about them. You know, I would go to, yeah. uh, I remember in my teens, um, you know, catch and release fishing had started to become popular. Uh, BASS yeah. had a huge influence on that. Just, I think, 
just overall, it doesn't matter what species it is, that culture that started in fishing tournaments um, was a huge impact on American conservation. So I grew up with that. And I remember I used to go to the boat sport travel show in Indianapolis, which is one of, it was one of the two biggest outdoor shows in the, in the country. And I would go to the DNR booth and pound on the table and say, you know, I was 16 years old. We need catch release fishing on Sugar Creek. We need magic. You know, you wouldn't listen to me every year. I think <laughs> they'd say, man, here comes that snot nosed kid again. Um, know it all teenager. Yeah, exactly. Oh, <laughs> trust me. I, that applied. Um, okay. and so I sure Creek from that standpoint has, has always been important to me personally, but important to my family, my community. Yeah. And I worked for years to get these things passed. And a, a guy, Rick Cockrum passed a 20 inch size limit for us, one fish per day. So sure Creek's one of the few rivers in America that's actually managed as a trophy smallmouth river, which is a really cool thing. Um, yeah. And so Shirt Creek and the Tippecanoe River are probably special for different reasons. One, Shirt Creek's special to my family. The Tippecanoe River, we didn't start fishing until I was 15. And it's a big river. It's a boat river. You can't really wade the tippy. And so we would take our <laughs> our uh, our aluminum boat that we borrowed from somebody and put it on a river. And I would row. Borrowed. Quotation yeah, marks and borrowed. Yeah, bar liberated. <laughs> And uh, yeah. we would float the tippy and I would row it. And I would pretend when I was, a, you know, 15, 16, 17 year old that I was rowing one of those Western boats I'd see on ESPN or, you know, mm -hmm. Saturday morning television. I just thought that was just the coolest thing. But that is a cool uh, thing. Rowing my dad down that river was special. And his best friend, a guy named Mike Strickler, would go along as well, who I still guide to this day, actually. It's interesting. Um, and those were really impactful times for me on that river. So I remember those, the tippy was sort of the getaway for us. You know, Sure Creek was our backyard river. The tippy was an hour away. So it was like going on vacation, you know. And so we'd go up there on the weekend yeah. and float that. And I just learned so much as an angler uh, watching dad fish. And it was the, it was, is unique because yeah, I fished, I caught fish, but most of the time I wasn't fishing, I was rowing. And so I learned, I learned from watching, which in fishing, you don't often get the opportunity to do for large periods of time. And so that was, mm -hmm. that's why the tippy is special to me because I remember the things I thought about as a kid and developed and we did everything when I was a kid and just not fly fishing. We also spin fished too. Um, so I just don't learn a lot from all that, but those, those two rivers are very special. And I don't think I have a, if I'm born any place else in Indiana, I don't know if, I have a fly fishing career. Um, there's a lot of rivers on Indiana. That's it's 35,000 miles of rivers in Indiana. It's an incredible state uh, in terms of fisheries. But those two are very special. And mostly smallmouth and all of them. Yes, we have a we have a continental divide in northern Indiana. Um, that people don't really realize we have that where the rivers turn north in northern Indiana. So we have Great Lakes and Steelhead that come out of those rivers into northern Indiana, mm -hmm. and then you get south of that, and then it's the Kankakee Marsh, which was the largest wetlands in America. It was bigger than the Everglades at one point. And so you have that wow. uh, that watershed that goes to the Illinois River system, and then you have rivers uh, east of that that go to Lake Erie, and then you have the Wabash River system, which is 
463 miles long in Indiana that drains two thirds of the state and it goes to the Ohio. Um, and so it's a pretty amazing just area to have grown up in. Uh, I felt like as a kid, I grew up in sort of a laboratory or a playground of fishing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's why those rivers it's a perfect are perfect storm. It, it, it was, it just, God put me here for a reason. I guess that's it. <laughs> How do you like to fish it? Are you, do you always prefer to be in the boat? Do you go back and forth? Um, I know you said the tippy is, you know, more of a boat river, but for sugar Creek, do you wait it much or you like to be in the boat or it depends on flows? I really, every chance I can get, I want to be in a boat. And I hear people say, yeah, but I really enjoy waiting. Well, Okay, I enjoy waiting too, but you're at a it, if if you have a boat and you can get in it, you're at a disadvantage waiting <laughs> on so many levels. I, you, you're spooking fish, you don't get to see what you need to see or what you could be seeing in a boat. So if I have the opportunity yeah. when I go fishing, I'm gonna grab a boat, and I rarely go fishing for just like an hour or two. If I go fishing, I'm gonna go fishing all day. So when you go by yourself. You go in the boat and just kind of anchor up or? No, that is the only time I don't. If I go by myself, I won't go in a boat. I will I will wade for a few hours or something. But that's okay. a that's kind of a rarity for me. I'm Usually I don't get to go by myself. You know, my son's going to go or a friend's going to go or, you know, I, I like fishing with people from that standpoint. I don't I don't go by myself very often. That's one of the things that I really enjoy about fishing from a drift boat, even more than a lot of the advantages that you mentioned, which are totally there, even on, you know, big trout streams that I have fished, which is not a ton, but it's, it's a number, you know, it's a, it's a good number, but uh, I like the social part of it. I like to be able, I like to be there with my brother or my father or the people yeah. that I'm with. I'm typically fishing with people I care about and, uh, like that we're there and maybe we'll stop and get out and wade fish a section or here and there, but you always kind of rejoin back at the boat, share stories, knowledge. And I I like being in the boat for that reason, probably more than any other. Yeah. I'll have people request when we, when we float on a guide trip, I'll have people request occasionally, well, let's get out and wade. And I say, no, we're not, we're not, we're not going to do that. We're going to catch fish and I don't want you spooking these fish. So yeah, you know, I'm, I'm pretty controlling where all that's concerned. <laughs> all right. All right. What's the most memorable fish that you've caught on the, that you have caught on the, on either of these rivers, any of these streams? Boy, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, you know, everybody talks about uh, 23 inch smallmouth, you know, they, you know, they're sort of like unicorns. Well, I've seen three in my whole life, only three. Um, and we've had fish that came close this year in my guide season, 22 and three eighths, 22, but 23s are extremely rare. I've, I've seen three, one on a guide trip and then two my, myself personally, one in 1989 on the Tippecanoe river. And then one in 2018 and one in 2018 is, is memorable because when I left fly fishing, I left the fly fishing business, fly shops, the lodges and all that. I was, kind of done with it all. And I uh, was moping around and my oldest son Stone said, hey, look, before you just completely give up, why don't you take me to the tippy and start to teach me the tippy like a guide would know the tippy. I said, 
fine. I'll just take you. And I hadn't fished that whole year. Like I said, just sort of. How old is he at this point? Uh, at this point, he'd be 21, 20 or 21 in college. Okay. And uh, okay. so I, I took him and we were floating down the river and he said, let me row. I said, fine, I'll fish for a little bit. So first I stood in front of a boat. I don't know how long. And I made one cast with a popper down in this bank and I was letting it drift. And I turned around, looked at him for a second and looked at the fly. And this gargantuan smallmouth came up and sipped it in. And I thought, oh, my goodness, that's as big a smallmouth as I have seen in a long time. And I hadn't to this point, I had stopped guiding six years previous. So I was really out of the loop. And we fought this fish, right. fought this fish and got it. And it ate close to the boat, which is usually chaos on a big fish. We put the fish in the net. We measured 23, actually bigger than that, but I won't say how big it was. But it was the biggest smallmouth I'd ever seen in my life. And at that moment, I was back. I was back. <laughs> and I told okay. him, I thought to myself, I, I don't know how this works out, but I got to go back. I can't, yeah. I can't live without this. That's why I was probably miserable. And so I told my wife, I said, I don't know what I'm going to do the rest of my life, but I'm going to go back and guide. This is four years ago. I'm going to go back and guide because, and then I'll figure it out. But right now I'm just going to go back and guide. She says, are you crazy? You really want to go back and do that? I said, yeah, I kind of, I kind of do. I, but I'll figure out a career, something, you know, I'll figure something out. Well, that was four years yeah. ago. I figured it out. I'm going to do this till I yeah. die. I'm having so like much it. fun. I've never had so much fun in my life in this profession of fly fishing than I've had the last three seasons now going into a, another fourth season, even though I had – you know, 16 other seasons ahead of that. And this, and then the course of the six years off, I'm, I'm back. I, I just don't, I'm going to do this till I can't do it anymore. So that that's probably the most memorable fish. And it's because I, if I'm not sure if I don't catch that fish, if I'm back where I'm at. Yeah. Right. Um, well, big thanks to your, to your son stone. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of anglers with a lot of memories in their, in their uh, brains that, uh, that they've shared with you that they wouldn't have had if, if your son hadn't uh, made that recommendation. Uh, what's different? What's different about it now that you've come back to it? How has it changed or, you know, because you were doing it before. I have nothing else to think about. I have yeah. no fly shops, no lodges, no nothing. It's, it's all I get to think about. And I'm on the water every day. I mean, I'm, you know, I wasn't sure how many days I was willing to do when I'd go back to guiding, but this year I'm going to end up at 150 days. And at 52 years old, that's a lot of, that's a lot of days, but I've never felt, I haven't felt this good in a long time. So I don't see any, I don't see any reason I can't do this the rest of my life. Well, it doesn't matter. I'm going to. Um, But uh, I think what's different is my, I have no distractions. So I never, I never thought I'd develop more flies and I've developed three or four more flies with, with, for different conditions that I wouldn't have thought about unless I'd have been maybe stuck in those conditions for days on end thinking, okay, I have to reconsider what I'm doing here. It's good, but it could be better. And I sit down at the vice and tie fly. I'll, but I'll tell you flat out. I do not like fly tying. I do not. I am 
which sounds strange considering how many flies I've developed and how many flies I've tied. I'm not fond of fly tying. I do like primary. Just the process of sitting down and tying. I'd rather go fishing. I also like problem solving. Yeah, problem solving is it. And I had a lot of that in the beginning because there weren't many flies. And basically it was, you know, a floating line, bass bugs, some streamers, woolly buggers, flies that were maybe borrowed from trout fishing. But, I mean, heck, the streamer fishing and trout fishing wasn't even developed at that point, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't have many flies to borrow from, from trout fishing, maybe woolly bugger. <laughs> so woolly bugger. It's, it's, it's out there for everybody. The woolly bugger. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, if you, I got news for you. If you have a body on a fly and you Palmer hackle on it, you're, that's, uh, you're not innovating anything. Um, but, <laughs> so yeah, I mean that the problem solving part is what, I enjoy, but even that, I don't want to sit tie flies for very long. I, I tie flies, go right. use them, and think, okay, this fits this technique. I'm convinced. Remember, I own a fly shop for 22 years. I'm convinced that a great majority of flies that I bought and put in the store, while they may look good, um, weren't probably fished much before they went into the, you know, into whoever to tie them to sell. Uh, so, what do you mean? Well, I, there's just a lot of flies that when I did get around to fishing them, they just didn't work that well. They didn't, they didn't have triggering, <laughs> okay. you know, the aspects of a fly. There should be triggers built in. And why are they built into them? What's the process? Mm-hmm. Well, why do you develop a fly? Mm-hmm. Why did somebody come up with a particular fly? Well, sometimes it's just to match something, and I get that. But then what about all those attractor-type flies, which is a majority of them for bass fishing? Why, why were they why did someone tie them? And I, I ask sometimes people that and they don't have real good answers. They, you know, well, what, what did you think about color wise, shape wise, size wise, what water conditions mattered to this? You know, what trigger did you put into the fly? Why is there a flash in your fly? Because flash isn't always a good idea. Sometimes flash is a very good idea. Um, can you talk about some of the reasons why different triggers work or why you personally put triggers into flies? Yeah, let's talk about flash because I think that's one that I get a little frustrated about when I see flies in somebody's box. They, It's almost as if someone falls in love with flash or doesn't like flash or doesn't seem to be a medium where that's concerned or a middle road. Um, I think okay. there's one aspect of flash, um, just as an example not specifically, but just as an example, what we're what we're talking about is that flash is is good for active fish. It's not real good for neutral or negative fish. In fact, it can be an absolute turnoff. Um, I think an absence of flash for neutral and negative fish is is a good idea, and I see that on a regular basis when I play around with flash and apply that principle. It seems to work pretty well. Um, I have had flashy flies. We have fished, trying to get fish to trigger them to eat them because they're either neutral or negative. And man, it is rough. Those fish don't want to eat it. You put a fly on that has no flash, and while you may not catch a bunch of fish, you start catching fish. So there, there's that's an example of what I'm talking about. You can't take a fly out of a fly bin and go, well, this is going to work in all these conditions because it won't. It's going to work yeah. in particular conditions, but is it going to... Is it going to work for everything? 
And as a guide on a daily basis, I have to know those things. And I have to have a full, I have 500 flies with me in the, in the boat. And sometimes I'm only going to use one or two for a week, but I'm going to go through the progression of if things aren't working the way I, they should, I'm going to start to eliminate certain things to get it to trigger a fish to eat it. And flash is just an example of one of those things that I play around with that I will, I'll completely get rid of sometimes to get, get fish to eat it. And it, it's successful. That, way of thinking about fly and fly development, I think, is where size, color, flash, sound, vibration is concerned. All those elements go into developing a fly. And I'm just, I think sometimes fly developers don't think through all those things like they should. Yeah. I'm fascinated by this. Uh, I have one question about flash, and then I want to ask maybe some of the other triggers that you consider. But uh, what's your take on flash as it relates to the environmental conditions. Well, that's a good question. I've gone down the road to where I, I started thinking flash on like a cloudy day would be good because, you know, it would get their attention and it's dark. But now I think more that flash on a sunny day is better because it actually is, has light to re- reflect upon, you know, but I mean, these are just my observations. I'm very interested to hear what you have to say about well, it. Well, I think, again, it does the, the, the sky and the water and all those elements should always go into thinking about color and size. But flash is not one of those things that I think, I think flash comes down to if those fish are active, flash is good. If they aren't, and you should know pretty quickly, if, if those aren't yeah. fish aren't active, then you shouldn't have flash. And, and I know that the temptation is, well, flash will trigger them. Look. Yeah, they see, that's what I'm talking fish about. Fish that yeah. are neutral or negative do not like loud things. They don't. And so I yeah. think color and size, if I'm in, and this is a, this is a good, I, I live by this. This is one of the things that I, I am just convinced is true. I don't care if it's spring, summer, fall, or winter. When my water is up and high, I've got big flies on i may mm-hmm. play around with the color a little bit depending on the shade of the thing of the color of the of the water but i want something big when the water is low and clear i fish small i don't care what season it is in winter is a good example of that in high water i'm using big stuff and people say well in the winter time these fish don't want big stuff they can't digest it baloney <laughs> <laughs> that is bull First off, fish in really cold temperature and trout are the same way. Only eat every once in a while. They may not eat every day. So what they eat, I, I, I'm not sure it matters to them. I think it matters to them whether they're spooked or not or whether they can be approached with something. I think big fish do eat big flies. I think that's probably true. And in high water, I think that's definitely true. But guess what? Big fish eat small flies too. And bass are the same way. Yeah. Do you think it has more to do with the energy they have to exert to get the fly, which is an argument for presentation and knocking them in the nose with the fly? I got to tell you, I'm, I'm not completely convinced of that either. I think it comes down okay. to, I think it comes down to is that fish maybe, uh, let me back up. So in the summertime, you may, you go down your favorite stretch of river and you catch a hundred fish. Yeah. You go down the same stretch of river in December and catch 10 fish. Why? Um, 
it could be you're fishing the wrong type of water. Maybe it's just the fish have moved potentially. Maybe, but more than likely, I think all that matters. Okay, so I don't want to discount that. So I, I don't believe in rogue fish. I don't think those 10 fish that I caught in the winter are rogue. I think they're all exactly the same and their metabolism is low. And there's only a certain number of those fish that are probably going to eat that day. And I caught the fish that were hungry. It was ready for them to eat. And when the temperature goes up a few degrees, there's more of those fish that may be willing to eat. So I, I think it's just a, a matter of metabolism in the day that they're going to eat. And in cold water, a certain number are going to eat. It just comes down to math. Um, that's sort of how I view that. Uh, and when fly size is concerned, I, again, I don't worry about whether I think it's too much for a fish or too little for a fish to, or to, or for a fish to eat. I just think I've run across that fish when it can, it's time to eat and I'm giving it the best opportunity. So I am right. in high water. I'm fishing a big fly and in, and I've had in cold water in 42 degree water, heck, okay. 37 degree water. I've had small fish eat big things. It's like, well, why in the world did that fish in 37 degree water temperature do that? It was his time. He was hungry. Metabolism. Yeah, so exactly. But he could see it because the water was high and the fly was big. Do you think then that you should be kind of really trying to target more water, move more in, in cold water because of that? Because it's kind of an odds game now. You're saying like, oh, you know, it absolutely is an odds so, game. There's only so many fish. Yeah, but see, I take the opposite. of I, I, I say, okay, my odds of catching fish are better if I cover less water in cold water. I'm going to, okay. because I know my river, I'm going to find, like in wintertime, I'm going to find those areas where I know the highest percentage there's going to be fish here. And I'm going to fish that. So when I float a six-mile section, I probably fish a mile of it. And I just row the rest of it. I'm just, I'm playing the odds. And you're right. I, I like how you put that because that's how I always put it. It's an odds game. How do I put this all together and then apply it to the best possible place. Am I always right? Probably not. Um, that day, I'll tell you that <laughs> yeah. best day I ever had in my life. We only fished two and a half yeah. miles. That was it all day. It took us all day, all took. two and a half hours. That's how slow we fished and how much time we took. And I, I, again, is an angler and I don't want to make it hard for new anglers who may be listening to this. The process of fishing, there's a lot of elements to it. And if you're a new angler or even an experienced angler, that process of fishing is what really good anglers are good at. They put that process together quickly. And a lot of times it just takes a lot of time on the water to figure those things out. And paying attention to temperature and the sky and the water clarity and then applying that to the flies and the technique is the whole thing in a process of fishing. I think that that's missing in fly fishing and has been for as long as I've actually been on this side of it. I think that a great uh, example of that is someone walks into your fly shop and says, what flies are they biting on? You know, and there's so much more that goes into it. And um, as I've developed as a fly fisher, you know, the more that I'm able to kind of consider more things, consider more things for me, it was like, if I could pick the perfect fly, I would just catch more fish. 
And I never really thought about just fish different types of water. I mean, I did fish different types of water, but maybe not as deliberately. Like, you know, I've been fishing riffles a couple, you know, I'm not catching fish in riffles. I need to move off seams and rocks and boulders or, you know, and like you said, I think it's that it's perfect, man. The process, how, how quickly you can go through that process. Now your odds increase because you just, your time is spent more valuably. You know, you're, you're, doing more with less, I guess, because you have all those yeah. things that you're considering. Look, I, I have a, a longtime friend, Jim Teeny, who's, you know, a, a steelhead legend. And I remember uh, one of the first guests I ever had in my fly shop back in 96 or 97 was Jim. And I, I loved watching his steelhead videos, him and Lanny Waller's videos on steelhead and on, from scientific angler. And in fact, I had in a, my early life, I was kind of obsessed with steelhead too, but um, Jim uh, has never, I think the only fly Jim has used since 1962 is a teeny nymph. That's it. That's it. A teeny nymph? What, yeah. What's a teeny, you mean like a, is that a specific nymph or is that a, yeah. Like, are you saying teeny as an adjective for nymphs or are you saying? T-E-E-N-Y. Oh. Teeny. Teeny nymph. Oh, okay. The team, Jim Come on, team Jason, give the program. Only, that's okay. You're the podcast interviewer. You're supposed to get this. <laughs> well, I mean, Jim's part of my history because I came along at the time when guys like him were giants. And I think he still is. Yeah. But, you know, I, I I was young and these guys were in their prime, you know, guys like him and Gary yeah. LaFontaine and, and uh, yeah. uh, you know, for you guys out West, guys like Mike Lawson um, and, and Gary LaFontaine. But then we had Dave Whitlock and those guys. Anyway. My point is, is that Jim has only fished one fly. And by the way, in saltwater and everything. But he thinks through the process of fishing and applying that one fly in different sizes and different colors, flash, no flash, depending on his conditions. That guy figured out the process of fishing and simplified it in a way that he can always apply his knowledge to the conditions and very quickly figure it out. And I, I, uh, it's maybe from a different, a slightly different perspective or, or discipline for me as a warm water angler. Yeah. He is, uh, he, he, that's the process of fishing and he figured it out and he was better than anybody else at it. (laughs) I am loving this chat, the process of fishing. And because it goes, like you said, warm water, salt water, trout different species it is really it is really bigger than all of those things it's fishing is the process and bringing all those things together let's not make fishing simpler okay let's not be anti-intellectual fishermen because that's gotten people nowhere don't think that people aren't smart enough to figure all this out because they are i always consider people who may read what i write as really smart people i'm not a smart person I'm just giving you the best I've got and people are smart enough to figure that out. So instead of dumbing down fishing, I mean, that's got to stop. I mean, all the people that I grew up listening to and watching as a kid, they weren't fly fishermen, by the way, they were mostly conventional anglers where they intellectualized fishing guys like Larry Dahlberg and, and Al Lindner and my good friend, uh, Dan Gapen, who just passed away, who I just, I'm going to miss him. Um, And so I think that there's something to that. We don't, we shouldn't dumb down fishing. 
it doesn't help anybody by doing that. Right. I think about that in the context of, I used to, I, I look back on when I would have a, a slow day fishing, you know, and be like, well, you know, the fish weren't biting today. And it's so not true. It's that's not it. It's not that the fish weren't biting. It's that you didn't figure it out, Jason. Like you didn't figure it out. There's a process well, and yeah. maybe it was, maybe it was the weather. Maybe it was the fly. Maybe it was the water. Maybe it was all these things that you're talking about, but you didn't, you didn't put it together, man. And that's okay. I mean, that's how we learn. Sometimes there isn't anything you can do. Sometimes it's just, you have conditions that converge to make it nearly impossible. And not all the best conditions line up all the time. Sometimes you may get two out of five conditions you want to line up, but that's um, true. That's true. But that's, that's also where confidence plays a huge role, right? And, and experience, because if you're confident and experienced, you know, the difference between a slow day and I haven't figured it out today. That's my opinion. I don't know. No, I think you're exactly right because the day you didn't catch fish on the river, there's likely somebody who did. And <laughs> exactly. They knew, they knew something you didn't. And I tell you, really good anglers are not naturally intuitive. They may have a knack for it. They may be fishy or woodsy, my dad used to say, yeah. but they're not naturally intuitive. They didn't come by it by accident. They just fished a lot. And while yeah. fishing for me was probably not healthy, or it didn't come always out in healthy ways as a kid and as a young adult, I did benefit from it. It did it did help me along the way in those experiences, but that it doesn't happen overnight. It takes a long time to learn that process of fishing, but it helps when you have somebody like my dad who taught me the process of fishing. Mentors, people yeah. that you can learn from, ask questions from, and take the take the lessons they've learned in their process and, you know, apply it. You don't have to make the mistakes. I mean, you still make mistakes, but you can learn from other people's mistakes, I guess. Is, no, is you're, that's a really good point. You should learn from other people's mistakes. Absolutely. And, and to a certain extent, rowing a boat for my dad when I was a kid, I mean, I got to see things that didn't work. <laughs> I think well, that next time, that's not going to happen. No matter what dad wants to do, I'm yeah. not letting that happen. <laughs> yeah. Anything else you want to talk about with the process of fishing? Because this has been fascinating. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, that process of fishing, I could, and that's the best way I could describe it. I, I could, it's endless and it applies to everything. I mean, it, I apply it to warm water fishing and bass in particular, but you know, I've got to fish for bonefish all over the world from the Seychelles to the Bahamas, Mexico, Belize. And I, I know I even started to think about bonefish in that way. What's the process of yeah. bone fishing? And when do these fish, you know, their body language and their, why are they where they are when they are and what flies work at that time and why my thing as an angler is my big question is why you're going to tell me that this is what the fish are doing. Why? Why is it important to know the why? Do you know? If you know your whys, then you understand You understand what you're doing and you know when to change things because you're not doing it haphazardly. You're not doing it on accident. You're doing it deliberately and with a purpose. And also, if you understand your whys, you can teach. You can't teach somebody if you don't understand why you're doing something. And it's hard to learn if you don't understand what you're learning. You just got the foundation of the process of fishing. That's it. Yeah. The why. Well, 
That's what we used to teach in the fighter squadron. The why is important. Why are you doing it? You better be. We had had whys for everything. There was not a single thing we did from the time we took our patches off to the time we debriefed that we didn't have a good answer for why we were doing it. And the better better instructors really understand their whys, in my opinion. But yeah, that's yours not... is life or death. Mine's prescription. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, that was At the end of the day, there may be someone equally angry about what I did and what you did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yours yeah. is playing for keeps. Mine, I just get to go home and, you know, eat dinner. Well, I just think it's it's come up multiple times. I need to write a, a, an article on this. That, but knowing why you do things is so important. I think anytime you're trying to do something where you're trying to progress and get better at it and understanding why you do things. Um, but I think the process, what I'm taking away from this really is a lot of, you're not going to have all the answers. Like you said, as a beginner, no matter what your experience level, but if you have an awareness that it's a process and you're able to just stop, think and treat it, be deliberate about the way you think about it and, assess like you know there's other different things i should be thinking out thinking about i think that's a good start i guess for the process well one quick point about that and i'll tell you the one thing i tell anglers all the time is do not go to the river and throw the kitchen sink even if you have the urge to do it that's a mistake and you may be wrong all day long but be wrong all day long i go to the river with two elements to my plan sometimes a third and i don't deviate from those because what happens is, is if you, you start to not catch fish, you need to probably wait for every, the conditions to get right because they're not always right all day long. But if you start switching right. flies, well, I need to do this, a color, I need to ch- – look, you forget where you started in the first place, your plan's gone. So you got to stick right. with your plan, right or wrong, stick with it and write it to the end. So I, I, I've had people say maybe I'm a little too rigid with my plans, but – I know better. And at the end of the day, most of the time I'm right. Well, you make, if you're making a change, you know why, you know why I'm making a change in fly and I know why I'm doing it. There's a reason. Yeah. yeah it's rare yeah. that you should do something drastic and change everything. So just, I think beginning anglers need to be cognizant of that. Don't throw the kitchen sink at fish. Yeah. There's other things that you can look at, or like you said, it could be a different time of day. If you could only fish the tip of canoe or Sugar Creek two days out of the year, you only have two days to fish. You can fish either. You can fish both on Sugar Creek. You can fish tip of canoe, but you only have two days. Which uh, which two days of the year are you fishing, and, and how are you going to fish? I'm going to fish Sugar Creek both days, and I'm going to fish it with a five weight and a box of terrestrials. And I told you I really didn't want to talk about it. Well, you said you didn't want to talk about terrestrials. You know, but, but you asked that question. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> this was my sneaky plan to get you to talk about terrestrials. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's okay. I. It's not that I don't. Obviously, I love them. It's my, you know, it's an important yeah. part of my career. But uh, I do other things besides <laughs> fish terrestrials, and I enjoy talking about the other things too. So, yeah, uh, but, I yeah, enjoy I mean, talking to you about them. Yeah. So that's what you're going to okay, get. Okay. So ter- terrestrials on Sugar Creek, which days of the year? Probably um, they're going to be the second week of August, probably, when the water's at its lowest and the water's hot. Um, 
and you know I'm going to go to a particular section and probably have to drag the raft most of the time. So I'll go to a raft during that time as opposed to the drift boat, and that's going to be my. But if you're if you're talking about me just fishing, I'm not taking anybody with me. Then that's that's no, what I'm just here. Just no, here. that's what I'm to see a fish come up. Look, we're fly fishermen, and to see a fish come up and eat a dry fly, and to watch the fish do it slowly and sip the fly in mm-hmm. is just the best. And that puzzle, that terrestrial puzzle, is the most fascinating thing of the year. And um, anyway, uh, that's that's what I'm going. All right. Do. Last question on on the on the tip of canoe and in, in Sugar Creek. If uh, if someone was a more beginner to intermediate fly tire, is there a couple of flies that you would recommend that they practice or or tie up before they came out for a trip to Fisher Waters? Uh, you mean fish with me? Um, either or. Yeah, come fish with you, or they're just coming by themselves and they want to fish for smallmouth in Indiana, yeah. and uh, they want to tie some flies that, that, that they could manage on a vice. Um, well, if you're fishing with me, don't tie flies. I won't let you use them. Um, okay. But <laughs> if uh, it's rare that I let people use them. But if you're going to come to Indiana or any smallmouth water – I it's, it's, I think, a couple of patterns is you should really know how to tie deer hair bugs. You know, so medium size, number sixes, number and smaller number tens can always be used. So I think deer hair bass bugs, which I love. And people can use any popper, but I love deer hair. And then um, it's pretty tough. You know, I'll mention one of my flies, a wildcat streamer, which is always, doesn't matter where I go, that works. But you know, Bob Clouser's half and half is a in a bunch of different yeah. colors. You could tie that. Honestly, you could tie half and half in a bunch of different colors and go anywhere in the country and catch smallmouth. So, you know. That's a pretty, yeah, that's a nice fly to tie. I tied it at a, first time I tied that was a Project Healing Waters uh, event. And it's pretty easy to tie. I, I was like, oh, this is. This is not so you can bad. tie it in a bunch of different really colors fishy. and sizes and, yeah. and and weights and um, it's a very effective the half and half with the with the hackles. It's a very effective fish triggering type of fly. For sure. Before I ask you my last question, Chad, how can people find out more about you? Maybe schedule a trip or um, what upcoming projects do you have uh, that people can learn about? Well, I'm in the process of uh, finishing my book. It's called Systematic Smallmouth. And it's written um, like a systematic theology book. Oh, it's not theology, but it's written in the same way. And that you, the first part of the book uh, develops a lens to see the species and then you apply it. So in my book, the first nine chapters right now are all about smallmouth behavior um, in all conditions. And then we go through a 12 month run. 12 month uh, calendar year uh, and apply the behavior to the fishing over that time. And then the part I'm getting ready to write now is the fly tying part that will be in the, in the flies to be in the back of the book. So um, that should be done in March. I don't know uh, exactly when it will be published, but hopefully shortly after that. So that, that's that I got, that'd be done. Like I said, March. Um, 
And then if you want to find me, you can find me on Instagram um, at Chad Miller Fly Fishing or on Facebook at uh, Sugar Creek Anglers. Or you can go to my website, sugarcreekanglers.com. Or you can text or call me, uh, 765-401-6034. Okay, great. I'm excited to read that book. If I, <laughs> I mean, that sounds pretty in-depth. We'll see. I, it's probably too long, but I don't care. Um, well, like you said, let's not dumb it down. Let's let's make fly fishing an intellectual game. Yeah, and I don't want to. I hate using that word intellectual because it makes it sound like fishermen are smart. We're pretty much, you know, not. But um, yeah, I, I, I want it to be something that people can use, and I don't really want to write multiple books on smallmouth, just one. So I'm just putting everything in one. One book to rule them all. I like it. Last question. If you could go back to when you were playing basketball and fly fishing as a kid and give yourself two pieces of advice, one more tactical advice and one more philosophical advice, what would you tell yourself to help you progress as a fly fisher? As a fly fisherman, as a young young guy, I would I would tell myself to slow down. I'm pretty aggressive by nature and I've had to really discipline myself over the decades to slow down and pay attention. So um, I would tell myself to the younger me to slow down. And as a basketball player, I would probably uh, tell myself to pass more. I was kind of a a black hole. And uh, so I probably would have um, shared, (laughs) shared the ball a little bit more. Um, so yeah, those are two things I probably should have learned when I was younger. Slow down and pass more. Those are good pieces of advice. Uh, and I appreciate that. And I, I appreciate what you're doing for fly fishing and taking the time to be on the show. And uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you and I wish you well, uh, doing what you're doing, uh, for the rest of your life. Like you said. Well, thanks Jason. I appreciate it. I'm a, I lived a, I lived a pretty blessed life to be able to do this and, that's not lost on me. Well, thanks a lot for sharing on the, on the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Wade Out There Fly Fishing Podcast. You can learn more about some of the topics we discussed in today's episode show notes. For more fly fishing ideas, stories, and artwork, check out my blog and online gallery at wadeoutthere.com. If you want to make Wade Out There a part of your own fly fishing journey, please subscribe and share. Until next time, wait out there.